Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I am your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you this evening. We're just uh, hopefully waiting for the other party on our uh, Coach's Corner panel to join us. Uh, one of them is here already, and we're just waiting for the other one. Uh, so I'll introduce uh, them in just a second. And then a little bit later on in the broadcast, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, uh, once again, Dr. Bern Bernacki. He is the president of the Golf Heritage Society, so I'm looking forward to having him come back. He's uh, gearing up for a special event a little bit later on uh, in the uh, season, early fall actually. So uh, he's going to come on and talk a little bit about that and, and uh, maybe give us some other updates uh, at the Golf Heritage Society as well. Um, really excited to have uh, tonight's guests on. And uh, I'm going to introduce both of the uh, panelists and hopefully the other will. I've just sent a message out, so hopefully the other will uh, join us momentarily. But uh, tonight on the panel, uh, if everything goes well, we're going to have uh, Sue Weger. Uh, she is a number one best-selling international author, motivational speaker, and peak performance coach. Uh, she's a 24-year LPJ Class 8 uh, golf professional and owner of Uyghur Consulting, LLC. Also uh, joining the panel tonight uh, is Brandon Stukesbury. He is the head golf professional at the historic uh, Metairie Gol- uh, Country Club uh, outside New Orleans. Uh, he's also an Amazon number one best-selling author of two books, uh, The Wedge Book, which came out back in 2015, and uh, more recently, earlier this year, the Putter Book, uh, which came out in 2021. Uh, for the past 10 years, he's been ranked among the top 10 teachers uh, in his state by Golf Digest and was part of the magazine's elite best young teachers list. Uh, he's a three-time P- PGA Teacher of the Year and a regular contributor to uh, golf media around the world. Plus, he's a Golf Tips Magazine top 25 instructor. So I'm going to welcome for now, I see actually Sue is here as well, so I'll welcome both of them. Good evening, Sue and Brandon. Welcome to Coach's Corner here in Golf Talk Live. Thanks, Ted. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Um, Yeah, no problem. Um, Brandon, I'm going to just get you to mute for just a second, uh, just because I know you're traveling and there's a little bit of background noise. I'm going to start with Sue uh, on the show uh, first off anyway. So if I can just get you to mute your mic temporarily, uh, just to... Uh, farm out some of the background noise. So, Sue, welcome to uh, Coach's Corner. I'm glad uh, you were able to uh, to make it. And uh, I'm excited to have you on the panel discussion tonight. You're joined, of course, by Brandon Stukesbury, who is a, uh, a fellow golf professional out in uh, the New Orleans area, actually. He just uh, moved uh, to that area and took up a head golf pro- uh, professional position there at the, the Metairie uh, Country Club in New Orleans. So uh, he's joining you tonight uh, on the panel. But we're going to talk about guys uh the key points 
to improving your score. There's a number of them, uh, some of them that factor in. And I want to get your, your, each of your thoughts on some of these points and just what you feel uh, sort of best represents each of the areas. So, uh, Sue, I'm going to start with you if you don't mind. And one of the points I always put together is I believe in practicing the important stuff. I'd like to get your thoughts, what you think. We, we see a lot of, yeah, we see a lot of guys and gals out in the practice tee, and they're kind of all over the place. In your mind and based on your experience, what do you think is some of the important stuff that the folks need to be practicing if they want to get better and score better? Well, I think the first thing that they have to practice is knowing what to practice based on what mm-hmm. they do on the golf course. And I think a lot of the times people don't know what they're actually doing on the golf course in the sense of, you know, where do they need the most help? And I think the the first thing that most people do is they need to analyze, you know, what um, have a, I like to call it a plane journal, which means, you know, are they driving, you know, off the, off the tee? Are they doing okay off the tee? Or are they having trouble in the fairway? Or are they having trouble with their wedges? Or they're having trouble with their putting. And I think that's the first thing is, you know, let's analyze the data first and then uh, then break it down a little bit to help them so they can what we call purposeful practice instead of just guessing mm-hmm. to find out what should I be doing. So I think that's the most important thing is to really analyze what's really happening. And that's why I really love playing lessons because as a professional, we can see really what's going on in the golf course where I know a lot of the times people go to the driving range and then they come, come to me and say, well, I need to work on this. And then I take them out on the golf course and it's something totally different. And I think that's where, that's where we can help them the most is really help them understand where should you be practicing, you know, in, in the sense, and this is how, this is how you can improve your game differently instead of just going out there and hitting golf balls on the range. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Sue. Um, you're you're right on the money, Brandon. Um, I'm going to bring you back in, uh, so you go ahead and unmute your mic. Um, Sue raises a, a really uh, brings up a really great point. Obviously, doing a, a, an analysis of your student is is extremely important to understand where they're at. But more importantly, again, as she pointed out, we often see uh, many of our students out in the practice tee. And uh, they, they think they need uh, practice in one area, but maybe actually it's something else. And we get them out in the golf course and, you know, sort of all hell breaks loose. What do you think? Is there some specific things or areas, Brandon, that you have discovered over your career that the folks really need to focus on? Yeah, I think Sue brings up a great point. Um, I, they have to know what they need to spend their time on, right? And, and unfortunately, you can't just leave it to to what they think because as golfers, <laughs> um, we tend to be influenced by lots of things. Um, you really need data to help you make that decision. And so, you know, let's assume for a second that, that they're doing what Sue's talking about and that they're collecting data on how they play, and that's allowing them to know that they need to spend more time, let's say hypothetically, on putting or on short game. Mm-hmm. The, the, the next thing I would tell you that I think very few, very, very few um, people get right is they don't practice with any sort of purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you this great example. A lot of times I think people use golf as a stress reliever, and that's okay. 
it's it's one of its functions can be that. But when you've had a stressful day at work and you stop by the driving range or your local club or your local course on your way home and you just want to de-stress and hit balls for an hour, that's not practice. That's stress relief, right? That's burning right. calories. That's the same thing as jogging for an hour. Because that's really all your golf game is getting out of it, right? You're burning calories. You're not really getting better at golf. Proper practice not only knows what you're practicing on or what you're supposed to be practicing doing, but it's also got a purpose. It's driven around competition. And whether that's a game or whether that's tracking how many times you hit a green or how close you're at each hip shot gets or randomizing your practice to make sure that you're not hitting the same shot over and over and over again. There's a plan. There's a purpose. It's not just randomly hitting a golf ball. And very, very few people get that right. And unfortunately, they might put some time in, but it doesn't really lead to their skill improving very much because it's not really practice. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point as well. And you're so right. You know, I mean, I, I can remember over the years just myself, you know, sometimes, you know, you're having an all right day and you just feel like getting up to the driving range and hitting some balls. But I knew in my mind that that wasn't a practice session. That was just out having some fun. I like to hit golf balls once in a while just for the sake of hitting them. And, you know, I knew that I you know, I wasn't necessarily focusing on any one area of my game. I just enjoyed getting out there. So as you said, like a stress reliever or just something, uh, you know, just to, you know, I hate to use the term killing time, but, you know, it's a lot different. And I think sometimes you see a lot of folks out there that just go up and hit balls and they kind of, you know, think that, okay, well, I, I just hit 50, 60 golf balls. So I'm good. I've practiced this week. And then they go out and play next week, but they haven't really focused on some of the fundamentals or some of the areas that were really key um, to, you know, where they needed to put their attention in. And so they're not really scoring any better. So I, I think you both raised some very valid points. Uh, and, and that is, first off, let's anal- uh, you know, do a quick analysis on what the areas are that the, the folks are really struggling with, not just taking their word for it. And it's not that we don't trust our, our students, but a lot of times they don't really understand um, what right. truly benefit them. And they're not focusing on some of the things and then also, too, again, making sure that they're putting in quality practice. In other words, practicing with a purpose, not just going up there and hitting balls. Sue, I'm going to come back to you. And, and, and this is one here, you know, we, we see a lot of, especially our high handicap golfers, uh, you know, sometimes posting some pretty big numbers. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a couple of different factors in, in, in doing that. What can we do or how can we help our students play away from that big number? One thing I can think of off the top of my head is for our weaker players or less accomplished players need to not be as aggressive out in the golf course. That's one area that I can think of. What are some other areas that you think of um, that maybe can help them focus on playing away from those and getting those big numbers? What can they do different in their approach? Yeah, and their approach, again, it goes back to practice and understanding that, you know, 65% of your score is short game. So you're, you're putting, you're chipping, and you're pitching inside of 60 yards is where most of these, let's say, less skilled players um, have trouble with because that's not where they're practicing. They're usually, you know, trying to get their full swing accomplished. And 
but if they go back and they understand that, wow, 65% of my score is really putting, chipping, and pitching inside of, you know, let's say 60 to 80 yards, then again, we go back and help them set up, like um gentleman said, with the purposeful practice and sense, okay, let's mm-hmm. teach them what golf really is because a lot of people think, well, it's just hitting a golf ball and that's where you're going to be gaining your score, and that's not true. It's, you said 65% of your score is 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 based on inside of it, 60 to 80 yards. And it, once you educate them, they'll start practicing a little bit differently, hopefully, <laughs> because not everybody <laughs> likes to practice chipping and pitching and putting because some of them, they think it's boring. And that's why I, I um, you know, I kind of created a, a 10, a 10 putting group, a, a 10 putting uh, video to let my clients, okay, here's what, here's your 10 drills I want you to go do. And, that way they have, again, purposeful practice. There's, for each drill, there's a purpose behind it instead of just getting out there and say, okay, I'm just going to go hit some three-footers. Well, as we know, we don't, all get, we don't get three-footers all the time. We get ten-footers, we get seven-footers, we get five-footers. And the um, same thing with chipping and pitching. So um, I just think you have to educate the, those what I call less skilled players and um understanding that short game is 65% of your score and let's start there. And then as you get better, then you'll actually, because if your pitching gets better, your full swing is going to get better too, because you're striking the ball differently. Right. Right. Exactly. Great points, uh, Sue. Um, Brandon, everybody wants to play away from those big numbers. Um, Sue obviously pointed out some great things. I know you will, uh, I'm sure will agree with, uh, with everything there. Cause I know you focus uh, on the short game as well. Um, but what are some other areas, what are some other things that I think the folks are doing uh, maybe incorrectly and it's causing them? It's, you know, obviously there's a certain skill aspect and maybe not practicing, uh, you know, diligently in some of the areas they need to. But what are some other things that you can think of that might help some of the golfers out there stay away from those posting those big numbers? Well, I, let's start by making a plan. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a novel yep. concept, right? And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to go back. There's two kinds of golf, <laughs> right? There's stress relief, have fun on the weekend golf. And then there's golf that you're trying to play as well as you can play, right? Those are two very different kinds of golf. And so if you're trying to play and you're trying to get better and you're trying to score and shoot a lower score, then you got to have a plan, right? you got to have mm-hmm. a way to look at a hole and take what you do and try to figure out where you need to aim it or how you need to hit it or the club, how far you need to hit it, et cetera, et cetera, that maximizes your chance of being able to hit the next shot. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that, right? For a club-level golfer, right. what can I do to maximize my chance of being able to have a clean swing at the next shot, because I'm not really concerned about fairway versus rough. I'm concerned about rough versus the bushes, right? Or right. I'm concerned about, uh, you know, just short of the green or around the edge of the green versus the the six-foot-deep green-tide bunker, right? And so mm-hmm. come up with some sort of plan, and that alone should help you to avoid some big numbers. I'm going to add one more thing to it. When you make that plan, just execute the plan. Don't play golf swing. 
don't kind of guide the ball. You you know, it, look, if you play a 35-yard slice, make a plan for a 35-yard slice. And then just go hit a 35-yard slice. Right? There's nothing yep. you can do in the moment that's going to change it. I used an analogy earlier today with one of my players. I said, look, this is like, you know, I'm in the South, and so NASCAR is a big thing down here. Right? And so I said to him, I said, look, you can work on your car all you want Monday through Saturday. You can tweak the engine, you can clean it, you can polish it, you can do whatever you want. But when the engine starts Sunday morning, you got what you got. Now you just got to drive it, right? And so make a plan and then just go out and swing the golf club. Are you going to hit them all right? No, 100% no. You're not going to hit them all the way you want, right? But if you've done everything you can do to plan smartly – and if you just relax and let you, you know, let your swing do what your swing does, then you have every way in the world to minimize the damage of when you hit a bad swing. It's a difference in hitting the driver off the tee that goes into the water versus one that goes into the right rough. The same golf swing can hit it in either one of those situations. One, you can't hit it again. The other one, you just walk up to it and you hit the next one. And that's the difference in a yep. triple bogey and a bogey. And it makes a big difference. Yeah, again, some great points, uh, both of you. You know, this is the thing, is, is not having a plan coming into uh, your round. A lot of people, especially, you know, and there's no excuse for that, especially players that maybe belong to a course or play a particular course on a regular basis, you've got a great advantage because you've been on that course. You know where a lot of the trouble is. You know where to stay out of. So go in with a game plan. and Don't just show up and, and say, well, I'm going to hit. And the other thing, too, to, just to go to your, your uh, point there, uh, Brandon, was that, you know, whatever, you know, when you warm up before you go out on the first tee, when you're out on the range uh, or the practice tee and you're just warming up, uh, getting used to the shots and so forth, if you've got a big old slice that day, don't try to change things when you get out of the golf course. Save that for your next practice session with your golf coach or your teacher professional that you're working with uh, or even your own personal session later on. I see so many golfers, and I know both of you do, they get out there and they say, well, maybe it's my grip, and they start fiddling around with their grip, and then, well, no, maybe I'm taking it too far inside, so they try to or the opposite. And by the time they get to about nine holes, they've messed up their swing so much that it doesn't resemble anything like it did at the beginning of the day um, and it just adds to their frustration. So I, I agree with both of you what you uh, what you said. I think if you want to play away from some big numbers, I think you know you need to focus on certain areas of the game that can help you reduce the score. But you got to go in there with a game plan and play with what you take that day. So something else too, I think that helps. And I want to preface this because I, I don't want people to misunderstand. But you know, when I was growing up as a youngster, I always made a point, um, you know, if I, if I wasn't playing with friends or what have you, and if I was just showing up at the course one day and I was going to jump in with a, a twosome or a threesome, I always said to the pro, I said, you know, you know, for the most part, you know people coming to the golf course. Put me with some better players. I always wanted to play with better players as opposed to people that were not as good as me. And I was pretty good as a youngster. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do you think about that? And what are some of the advantages of that? Obviously, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you mimic what they do as far as their golf swing. You know, you have to have your own golf swing. But there are some things that you can learn from better players mm-hmm. by sticking with them out in the golf course. Maybe you can run off a few of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
any time that you go play golf, it's a learning opportunity, and that's what I tell all of my players. I said, you're going to learn something today. Whether or not it's going to be learning something about the golf course, you might learn something about yourself, and you might learn from somebody else, and that's good. I mean, what a great opportunity to have to have that availability to just be open to it, and, and I think that's what um, you know, stops a lot of people because when they're playing with better players, they're worried about who they are and how their swing looks or, or whatever. And I just keep teaching my players, like, just be open-minded. And it's going to be a learning opportunity any chance you get. Like I said, the golf course may teach you something. The other player might teach you something. Um, you know, you just you have to be open to it. And I think that's, a, that's what makes golf this great game so fabulous because it's an opportunity to learn something. Every time you go play, every time you go swing, you're going to learn something. And if you're not open to learning, then mm-hmm. we know what that happens. Then then somebody else shows right. up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, my good friend Cindy Miller always says that. She says uh, one day Cindy shows up and the other day Cynthia shows up, and she never knows which one's <laughs> going to get there until she gets out in the golf course. And obviously That's one's right. good and one's bad. But, but you know, it... it uh, the thing that I always, and I'm using myself as an example here, the thing that I always took away, you know, I didn't try to learn how they were swinging or I didn't try to emulate specifically how they approached, uh, you know, the golf ball. But what I did mm-hmm. learn from is I, I, is I watched how they prepared, especially if they were a really yeah. good player. I watched, okay, how do they prepare? You know, do they have a good pre-shot routine? You know, do they have a consistent pre-shot routine that they're mm-hmm. doing the same things all the time? And there were a lot of different things. And I would also, the strategy, you know, a lot of times if they, if, if they had, um, you know, commonalities, if they were slicing the ball a lot, and if they were playing to that slice, then again, it sort of mm-hmm. falls into the strategy, which, which Brandon talked about a second ago. So, you know, there are a lot of things that you can learn from playing with better players. And conversely, you know, if you're playing with some that are not as good as you, uh, that can have a <laughs> negative effect because you start picking up their bad habits and, and you know, you're, you're mm-hmm. sort of doing an exchange. The one thing I will say for, for those out there that tuning into the show that, you know, want to get in with a group that's a better player, is there's two things that you have to be uh, mindful of. Number one, if you're not as good of a player, be respectful if they're playing at a pretty good pace. You know, if you're not that good of a player, and if you have to, and, you know, obviously if you're in a tournament, it's a different story, but um, you're not going to be playing with them if you are, but... Um, you know, pick up your ball, you know, you know, if you start getting up seven, eight, nine shots, pick up your ball and keep the pace of play and don't sit there and and pester them all the time, trying to get swing tips and ideas and that just observe, be a sponge, observe what is doing and learn what you can. And, and, you know, maybe afterwards at the 19th hole, you can have a conversation with them and say, Hey, you know, I noticed you guys did this out there and, you know, maybe you could help me out a little bit with my game or what did you notice? You know, there's things that you can learn, as you said, from that. So a great point, uh, uh, Sue, thank you. Um, Brandon, I'm going to give you a different question because I think, you know, I, I think Sue pretty much covered everything there. Um, one of the things that I, I think that a lot of amateurs really struggle with is their level of commitment out in the golf course. You know, we see from the professionals on TV, they'll, you know, identify what the situation is going to be. They make a decision, they commit to it, and then they just do it. A lot of our amateurs don't seem to follow that same pattern. What are some tips that you can think of that might be able to help some of our amateurs follow that same pattern, to be able to make a commitment, stick with everything from club selection to, uh, you know, the type of shot they want to hit, and then just get out there and do it? We often see them 
uh, you know, sort of floundering around out there. What do you think? How can we help them to be more committal, if you will, in their golf shots? Well, commitment is all about consistency, right? It's easy to be, it's easy to commit to something when you know pretty much where it's going to go. Now, here, here's something that's interesting. I have people ask me all the time. I'm sure Sue would agree. I'm sure Sue would agree. If I had a nickel for every time a student came to me and said they wanted to be more consistent, I'd be <laughs> I'd be living on a boat, right? Yeah. But here's yeah. the thing: someone that slices the ball 35 yards, they're the most consistent player on the entire golf course. They do the exact same thing every time they swing it, right? I mean, if you told me in my personal game, Brandon, every time you hit it, it's going to go 30 yards to the right, I'd shoot 65, right? I I mean, what they have to start to understand is that they have some of the skills necessary to play better golf right now if they just add a plan into it. But to your point earlier, what they do is they try to fix the slice after the first one. And then the right. change that they make takes away the consistency that the slice had. And now they have to deal with that miss in addition to the slice that's probably going to show up again. And then they're not going to like the hook they just hit because they were expecting a right. slice. And so now they have to try to change something else to fix the hook and then it slices again, but they were expecting the hook, and it's just this big vicious cycle that goes round and round and round, right? And so mm-hmm. stop right. messing with it, right? That would be my advice. Right. Stop messing with it. Just go play golf, right? If you if yep. you hit it 30 yards to the right, aim it left. Like, we're not building missiles here, okay? I mean, we're, we're, it's just not that hard. I understand that the ball isn't going straight, but you don't have to hit it perfectly straight to not make an eight. You just have to understand where your ball is likely going to go, and then you can hedge your bet away from that place, right, or away from the danger that comes from that. And so I, I just don't – it's so frustrating because when you – you know, you talk about watching <laughs> a better player play, right, and what right. can they learn from it. Well, that's something they can learn, right? Better players mm-hmm. manage their game. And I know every single 20 handicapper out there that's listening right now is saying to themselves, oh, sure, it's easy to manage your game when you hit it straight every time. Listen, I play to a four handicap. I don't hit it straight every time. I assure you I yep. don't hit it straight every time, right? But I know enough about what my tendencies are to be able to aim myself and plan myself accordingly to minimize the damage, and they just don't do that. Instead, they choose to mess with it, and they destroy any shred of consistency that they ever had before. And in the absence of consistency, they replace it with sheer panic, right? Yeah. Because they have no clue where it's going to go. It might go left. It might go right. You might move so much that you're going to top one, or you're going to hit one fat, or you're going to hit one thin, and it just turns into a total disaster. And, you know, and, and, and so – I see it every day. I'm sure Sue would agree. It happens all the time, and it's just unnecessary. It just doesn't have to be that stressful. Yeah, I totally and, and agree. again, totally so, agree. Yeah. yeah, some some great points. You know, it, it goes back to you know what you both said in the beginning, and that is practicing with purpose. Um, you know, I think if you get out there and you're working on things and you're practicing with uh, and developing a consistency, and again, it may not be. You know, no golfer hits every shot perfectly. So, you know, if you think that you're going to suddenly, 
you know, reinvent the wheel and you're going to be perfect out there, uh, you know, by tweaking this or tweaking that out in the golf course. Well, it's just not going to happen. And that's why the pros don't do that. Even the pros sometimes will go out there and, you know, you think, oh, well, man, they're hitting them straight all the time and they're hitting them perfect. Well, that's just not the case. Um, even they have some missteps in that way. The difference is they play enough and they practice enough that if they do do something differently, nine times out of ten, probably ten times out of ten, they know what it is that they did wrong because they're so in tune and understand their game. Uh, you're not going to see them top it. You're not going to see them uh, you know, put a, a 35-yard slice on the ball. Um, but if, they, if their intent was to draw the ball and instead they push it, well, they know exactly what they've done, and they know how to correct it. But they're not making actual mechanical swing changes along the way. And, again, they commit to it. When they stand over that ball and they say, okay, I've got to go over uh, you know, water here and there's a bunker on the right, I know I've got to clear that. They know the yardage. They know where the direction the wind's coming from. They've made a commitment. They've assessed the situation, and then they get up there and just do it. And that's the difference, really, between amateur players and our better players, is that they know that once they've gathered the information and they have assessed what shot they need at hand, they're going to do their best to accomplish that, whereas the high handicap or the amateur golfers are still got doubt and a lot of misinformation floating in, in the old bread box upstairs, and they just don't know what to do, and they freeze over the ball, and that's when all kinds of things to happen. Um, Sue, I'm going to come back to you. Another uh, you know, point is, uh, again, and, and this sort of dials into um, having sort of a, a, a safety shot, if you will, and what I mean by that is developing a safety shot. Um, you know, Tiger even had that. I mean, he had several of them, but you know, a lot of times he would uh, have a fallback shot to, you would see him hit a two iron off the tee because he knew he needed to put it in, in position. So if he didn't feel his driver was going to be the best shot to handle at that particular hole, he'd pull out his two iron or he would pull something else out and he would do that. And those were his go-to shots. I think a lot of players need to find, uh, and it may not just be a shot, it may be even a club that they're most comfortable with. If they get in a situation that's their fallback. If they don't feel comfortable in the shot, they can reassess and say, I'm going to fall back. Help me walk through that so that our, our players out there understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you're struggling out there, I think you all always need to have a safe place and a safe club. And I teach my players about loft because loft is your friend. And most of the time, mm-hmm. um, people are trying to hit too much club. And that's another reason why they kind of get themselves in trouble. And so I, I always tell them, I said, well, you know, loft is your friend. So I explained to them if you're hitting a driver and the driver is one degree open, you're going to hit a you're going to hit a fade slice. But if you hit a three wood off the tee and you have one degree, that ball's going to go a lot straighter because the spin is different. And the same thing mm-hmm. with their iron. So if you have a little bit more loft on your clubs, or choosing a club that has a little bit more loft, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna be more forgiving. Even if you make the error of a face open or a face close, you'll still keep the ball in play. And I think you just have to educate golfers in that way and under, let them understand that not only is it a safe club, but it's a very smart choice. <laughs> Many times right. is to is to is to pick the club that's going to keep you in position rather than um, take a club that you don't know. You don't know where it's going to go. So I think it's just um, 
teaching and educating the, the golfers about loft and and yeah, the safe club, absolutely. You always want to have that go-to club um, so that you can go always, always go to it. You can feel gov- uh, very comfortable about it because I think what happens is people play from the mindset of fear versus what versus confidence. And if you're if you're mm-hmm. fearful over the ball, you're using the wrong club. <laughs> And you have the right. wrong attitude. You know, you have the wrong belief system. So if you have a, a go-to club, and it's it's a, you know it's amazing to me when I talk talk to players and I say, so what's your favorite club? And they'll pull it out of their bag and let's say it's a five wood or something. And I said, what's your least favorite club? And they'll pull another club out. I said, what's the difference between these two clubs? And I'll say, and they're like, well, one's longer, one has one more loft or whatever it may be. I said, I said, who's swinging it? You are, okay? So what's the difference between your mindset, between your favorite club, and your least favorite club? What's the difference in your mindset? Because that's the big Mm -hmm. difference. Because they don't trust themselves when they're over a club or over a ball that they don't, that that the club that's not comfortable with. And really, it's just a shift of a mindset and say, to have a belief. And I know that what happens, they say, well, I don't hit this very well. And I said, but you're basing your, you know, your, your belief system on what you've done before. So right. you're, you have a you have a collection of mistrust because you've seen this you've seen this happen. I said versus if you, the club that you trust yourself with, what's the difference in your mindset? And they're like, well, I know I can hit it. And I said, well, what's you just said? So I'll say to them, I said, what did you what did you just say to me? Well, I know I can hit it. Whereas when mm-hmm. you get your least favorite club in your bag or you're in your hand, what do you say to yourself? And they usually say. Uh oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. <laughs> yeah, so they can't hit it. Yeah, a, exactly. Yeah, they can't hit it. Yeah, and so it's a mindset and it's a belief system. But again, there are some you know less skilled players, and that's why I always tell them. I said, let's go to a little bit more lofted club, and that's usually what happens is most players will hit better shots with a little bit of lofted, more lofted club because the ball, um, you know, the ball spin rate is different, and the ball can stay more in line you know, with our target or in line with the fairway. So, um, but it's a little bit of a mindset, totally, when, you know, when you have a least favorite club versus your favorite club. Right, well said. Um, you're exactly right. And it goes back to what we just talked about a minute ago, and that's commitment to it. And again, they're mm-hmm. unable to commit to something because they're not comfortable or they don't feel consistent uh, with that particular club. And, and I agree with that. You know, I, I've thank God for the invention of the hybrid because... That was a club (laughs) that I think a lot of players really grapple to, um, you know, especially players that struggle with their driver or even some of their fairway Mm -hmm. woods. A hybrid's a pretty handy club to have to hit off the tee um, because it's very Mm -hmm. forgiving. Again, higher loft, and it still goes a pretty good distance for most uh, golfers. I mean, I've used it many times myself. You get out on a a short par four even, and, uh, you know, I know I can drive the green, but... Again, there might be some trouble on either side or, or even out in the middle, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to take that risk, so I'll pull out a hybrid club and just put myself in position mm-hmm. and have a nice approach shot to the green and uh, you know, right. uh, set myself yeah. up either for a nice birdie or, worst-case scenario, par. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you know, I think it's uh, doing that is, is uh, having that go-to shot, or in this case, a go-to club, I think is extremely important, for, uh, particularly for amateurs. And believe it or not, a lot of pros do that as well. 
Um, people don't yes, they do. always hear that or don't mm-hmm. realize that, but they do do that. They have favorite clubs or, or a favorite shot that they have in the bag that they know they can go to whenever they get in a scenario that they're not comfortable with. They know they can depend on that. It's reliable, and uh, it helps uh, get them through many difficult situations. Brandon, I want to bring back to you uh, something a little bit different, and, and that is the, the term one shot at a time. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but I'll, I'll open it up just a little bit for you. You know, a lot of players, again, get into this mindset. They get up there. They're thinking about the past. They're thinking about the future. They're not thinking about now. Walk us through one shot at a time, what we mean by that. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a mindset, right? I mean, you know, Sue just talked a lot about the mindset of a favorite club versus a not favorite club. I mean, you, you have to understand that when the club's moving at 85 miles an hour, you have no control. Mm-hmm. Like, you just don't. And so all you can do is plan. Notice I've said plan about seven times since we started this call, right? Um that right. means it's going to be on a test, right? It's, it means it's important. <laughs> right. um, all you can do is plan, right, and then do your best to execute that plan, right? And so let me give you a great example, okay? And so let's just say that your plan was to hit it short right of the hole, okay? Let's say it's a par three, and your plan was to miss it short right of the hole, okay? And you make a bad golf swing, and you end up – long right of the hole. Well, is it your plan to still get it short right of the hole? Like, like, no. just because you hit it long and right doesn't mean that the plan has changed. Like, you still hit, you still, you still need to hit it there. That's still the best place to make the putt from. So, no matter what you did the last shot, or no matter what the putt looks like, your job is still to get it short right of the hole. That, to me, is is the epitome of one shot at a time. I, I mean, mm-hmm. my job is to do X. What I did on the last shot or what I'm going to have to do on the next shot has no bearing whatsoever on what my job is for this shot. Right. And I'm going to do my best to execute it. If I don't execute it, then I'll just go up to the next one and I'll figure out what I have to do to get back on plan. If I do execute it, then I'll just walk up and I'll figure out what the next step in the plan is. And I'll try to execute that. What happened before doesn't matter. It has no bearing at all. And that's the mistake I think most amateurs, you know, less skilled golfers as we're calling them on this program, that's the mistake I think they make. (laughs) They either allow what happened on the last swing to influence what they're going to do on this swing or they're thinking about what they have to do instead of what is in front of them, right? And I think those two mistakes are when the one shot at a time rule gets broken and things go chaos, right? Things go into just complete chaotic disarray. Um, what you did before or what you're getting ready to do next has no bearing on what you have to do now. I bet I say that 10 times a day teaching golf. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, that's – yeah, you know, again, 
what a lot of players don't understand is once you hit the shot, obviously, as you said, you have to come in with a plan. What's, what's your plan for this hole, um, whatever that might be. Once you've hit that, that initial shot, that shot's over with. Now, if it's on target, mm-hmm. if, it's, if, if your plan uh, has been executed properly, then you're okay. You move on to the next step, as you said, in your plan. But if you've now mishit it and it's somewhere else, then your next shot is not, well, what I just did, but what do I need to get myself back to the position I originally intended to? Um, and I think what, as you said, uh, Brandon, I think what a lot of amateurs do is, I always equate this, and I've mentioned this several times on the show, is I equate it uh, going to the, to the airport. Um, you know, everybody brings, you know, baggage to the airport. You know, we bring our luggage and so forth. Um, and golfers do that as well, but what happens is they just keep dragging the same baggage to every shot. So every bad shot that they've hit for the last six holes, they're bringing, well, I sliced it uh, you know, on that last hole, so I'm probably going to slice it again, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, and they, they get off of their plan. So now suddenly they're, they're reactive to everything and not really sticking with the plan. So if you... We're going, as you said, uh, Brandon. If you're going short right and you hit it long right instead, well, that's okay. As long as you haven't put yourself in trouble and and you've got an easy shot, now you want to get yourself back and put it in the position that you originally wanted to. Um, the difference is you got a little bit less distance to go, so it's a little bit easier shot than your first one. So again, as long as you're sticking with your plan, then you're going to ultimately see over time that your scores are going to start coming down because you're sticking with the plan. Um, so I'm going to share a real quick story with you that I gave a student the other day. Now, this was a competitive player, right? But I think the, the, the thought and the theory applies. If I laid out 30 feet of two-by-six lumber, I, I think everybody listening knows what two-by-six lumber is. It's about five and a half sure. feet wide, okay? If I laid out 30 feet of it and said, I want you to walk from one end of this lumber to the other end without your feet touching the grass no uh, no person old enough to walk would have any trouble with that right my, my three-year-old daughter would have no trouble with that okay you mm-hmm. could probably as an adult you could probably throw a basketball back and forth chew gum and sing a song all at the same time while you were walking back and forth right well mm-hmm. now i'm going to take that same 30 feet of two by six and I'm going to put it over a 3,000-foot canyon. Well, what's changed? <laughs> Nothing has changed, right? You're, you you right. still have the job of just walking from, the, from one end to the other end, right? Except everything has changed because now you could fall to your death. And so the mindset right. completely shifts from walk from point A to point B to don't fall to my death. It's the same task. Nothing has changed, yep. right? You won't have any more trouble walking over that, that, that 30 feet of lumber above that cliff as you would if it were on the ground, except your mind completely changes the task. And to me, that's what one shot at a time is, right? We let our past experiences or the fear of what might happen in the future dictate how we move in the moment. And that's not playing one shot at a time. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really, really great example. And, you know, again, if you look at the pros as, as uh, you know, a good example, um, 
they don't focus. When they look at a hole or they look at a shot, they're not focusing on the trouble. They know the trouble's there. Obviously, they're cognizant of it, but they're not focusing on it. They have a specific target that they're going for, and that's what they're going to execute. And if it's a you know 150-yard shot to a green, and they know the pin's in the back, and it's, it's a, a safe shot for them to hit, then they're going to hit it. If it's not a safe shot, then they're going to position somewhere else. They're going to pick a target somewhere else on the green that they know that they're going to be able to execute with confidence. And, uh, again, they know that there's trouble around, but they're not focusing on it. It's the same thing as your example there. If you have the same shot, or in this case you're walking on that 30-foot 2-by-6 uh, lumber uh, you know, on a flat surface, you know, you're fine with it. But now you put a, a, a scenario where there's a problem, where there's a, a, a hill or a valley underneath or a canyon, and now all of a sudden you've created a problem and a trouble that I guess brings in that fear for a lot of people, which is understandable. But again, that's the difference between the pros and the amateurs is they're able to block that out and stick with the task at hand. And that's a great, great example, uh, Brandon, of a, of a one-shot-at-a-time approach. Sue, I'm going to come back to you on this one here. And this is another area that I think falls into sort of one of the key points to really helping to improve score. And we see this uh, this example in so many cases, in fact, many cases, uh, and that is not having the right equipment suited for your game. You see a lot of amateurs, whether it's they've got the hand-me-down club uh, or whether they've gone out and they bought something because they see a pro playing it on TV and they think that's the club for them, they're not fitted, what have you. Again, let's talk about some of the pitfalls of not having the right equipment to take with the open golf well, I mean, yeah, I'm a Henry Griffiths professional fitter, so I educate my players right away because just un- let them understand, that, you know, centeredness of contact is what you're going to get. You're going to get, um, you know, your best shots out of. So if the clubs are too long, you're going to hit them on the hosel. If they're too short, you're going to hit them on the toe. So how does that? How how does those mishits affect distance? It's it's everything. Um, and then, of course, you know, when they're, they're making good swings and they, they just came up with some equipment that maybe, you know, what I get a lot of women, they get their hand-me-downs from their husbands or their boyfriends, and, and it's like they're either too stiff or too long or um, the grips are too big or whatever. So you just have to educate people and let them understand there's not one professional tour player that plays with ill-fitted equipment, not one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And right. so you have to educate. You ha- we have to ev- ev- we have to educate our amateurs the same way because if they want the most out of their game, then you have to have the equipment that fits you. Now it doesn't have to be the most expensive, but it does need to fit you. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just like I give the analogy is like if you're gonna if you're a skier, you're not gonna go and get two sizes two sizes up in boots or in bindings. If you go up down, you go down a black. Um, you know, black diamond ski slope, you're going to kill yourself and you're not going to have a good experience. Right. <laughs> so it's the same thing. Right. And it's just, you know, I think it's just, I think the golf industry needs to do a better job of educating the amateurs on about fitting, that it's important. Um, and once you, once they understand that they do get a fitted club in their hand and they start hitting a golf shot because some of, you know, a lot of my players have great swings, but they'll, you know, playing too stiff or too soft of a shaft and the ball's going everywhere. And once you educate them and then you get them in with just one club that fits them, they're like, oh, 
that's what this feels like. And I and then you just show them, yeah, there's the centerness of contact. Put a piece of nice face tape on the club face, and they're looking at it. I'm like, oh, that's what the centerness of the face feels like. <laughs> so it's just, again, I think it's just educating them about having the right equipment. Like I said, it doesn't have to be really expensive. It just needs to be um, the right equipment for them. And everybody's different. And that's why, um, you know, you you get a lot of people coming to the, to the range with, you know, ill-fitted equipment and the wrong size grips and the clubs are too long or, you know, whatever it may be. And I think we just need to educate the players a little bit more about, or I should say a lot more in regards to, you deserve to have fitted clubs just like a professional. You absolutely deserve it. So if you want the, the most out of your golf swing, then let's put you into something that, you know, that matches you as a player and you as a person rather than, just like, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do. And that's and that's unfortunate, too, is because a lot of beginners come into the game with very poor equipment because they don't want to spend the money right away. And then they struggle. And like I said, there's, that, there's their foundation. Where are they getting their foundation from? Well, they're getting their foundation from ill-fitted clubs. So... I think it's a. I think it's very important that we just we keep educating um, golfers to have fitted clubs. I think that's a great point. And, and Brandon, I'm going to just uh, sort of pose the same question for you, but I'm going to change it just slightly a little bit because I know that uh, a lot of what Sue just uh, discussed, I know you you agree with as well. Um, but in, in addition to you know making sure that you're fitted properly, I think the type of equipment that you have uh, can play a factor. For instance, I'll give you an example. You know, a lot of times I'll see. Uh, amateurs coming out uh, again maybe they've gotten a hand-me-down or they've seen something that a, a tour pro is playing I think well that's the club for me and maybe they're playing with more of a a forged what we refer to as a forged or a blade type club when maybe they need something a little bit more forgiving and then there's also the types of clubs that they have in their bag maybe they need uh, less of this uh, type of club and maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more of that maybe you can pack that in uh, nicely for us what we need to you know for our skill level, what we need to be looking at putting in our golf bag. We've got 14 clubs, but maybe some of them we don't need. Maybe we can change them out. What are your thoughts here? Well, uh, sorry, just making sure I wasn't on mute. You know, I always tell people when we're doing fitting, there are three factors that you really need to consider, right, in no particular order. Performance, look, and feel, right? You could argue price is a, is a, a fourth, but most of your major manufacturers are going to run similarly enough in price to where that's not a concern. But if you want to add for, you know, price in there, I mean, you know, you can. And then I say this to people, how you prioritize the three is entirely up to you. But as your coach, I'm always going to prioritize importance first, or sorry, and prioritize performance first, right? I'm going to put performance above look and feel. Right now, marketing and what the tour boys play and what your buddy at at the golf, you know, at your local club plays or just bought or that really good handicap golfer, really low handicap golfer that just beat you in the club championship, what he plays, you know, those can all influence. But if you just keep it simple, performance, look, and feel, and if you put performance first, usually that takes care of that, Right. I typically what I do is mm-hmm. I describe in any given manufacturer, I say, look, you know, the, the, the question is really not which manufacturer, title is Callaway, Ping, you know, TaylorMade, whatever. 
Right. The better question or the bigger question is, you know, they all make a good car, okay? They all make a good truck. The, the bigger question is, do I live in the city and do I need a truck or do I really need a car or do I work on the farm and I really need a truck instead of a two-seater or four-seater sedan, right? And so let's figure out what your game needs first. Right, and that would be the model, whether it's the, the more forgiving model or the middle of the road or the, the really unforgiving, well, not unforgiving, but less forgiving, smaller top line, you know, less offset type model. Let's figure that out first, and then we can have a discussion. That's the performance piece. Then we can have a discussion on look and feel, right? And so if we decide that we need – a game improvement iron, then fine, let's get a game improvement iron, and then we can hit some different manufacturers or different brands to find out which one looks and feels the best. I think when you educate mm-hmm. folks what the clubs can do for them, I find that it that it replaces any preconceived notion they might have had coming in. Now you've always got your you've always got your vanity player, right? Right. That has this idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna learn my golf swing is going to morph itself into being better because I have a harder to hit iron. Right? Mm-hmm. I personally don't subscribe to that theory. There are a few out there that do. Um I don't personally subscribe to that theory. I think you need to find something that allows you to perform the best and then figure out the one that looks and feels the best. As for the you know, what, what set makeup to play, I always try to let data make that decision for me, right? I mean, I'll let them mm-hmm. hit their golf clubs on a launch monitor, and let's find out. You know, some of them just don't believe that their three-iron goes as far as their four-iron goes as far as their five-iron, and their six-iron only goes five yards farther or shorter. Some people just don't believe that until you show them, right? And so I love mm-hmm. doing that on a launch monitor. I know not everyone has access to a launch monitor, but there are ways you can do it even without a launch monitor. If you go out on the golf course late in the evening, you could have them hit five balls and then go go to the five and measure the distance and, and you know and get an average. Right? There are ways you can do that, but a lot of people just don't understand. And when I when you take hitting a shot into a hole out of the equation, and you just have them hit a ball and make a golf swing right without any sort of um, guiding it because you're trying to be accurate or all the other crazy things that golfers do, then you start to get some true numbers on how far clubs really fly. And then you can start to have that conversation. When I'm ordering golf clubs, um, you know, for students, I usually don't recommend ordering any higher than about a, a five iron, maybe even a six mm-hmm. iron, depending on the player. And then we're going to find out how far when we get them, then we're going to find out how far that six iron or five iron goes. And we're going to look at some numbers and we're going to find out, you know, some, some launch and some ball speed characteristics. And then if we decide we need to order a four iron or a three iron or a hybrid or a fairway wood, we can order them after the fact. Because as Sue knows, you only get seven irons in your fit cart, right? Um, and so that's you kind right. of have to make an assumption based on some seven iron numbers, and that's not always easy to do. So mm-hmm. instead of going ahead and ordering the four iron, only to find out that we needed a hybrid instead, and now we're $175 deep and an iron we'll never use. Let's just let's order it next. <laughs> yes, it might take a little longer to get the club in. You know, you won't get your full set for a couple of weeks or maybe a month, but when we get everything in, we'll know that it's perfect for you. And so that's generally how I handle that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great thing. And, and I'm a firm believer, especially for our, our really early beginning. You know, 2020, despite the pandemic, uh, has, has really been good. Uh, golf has certainly benefited in many ways, getting a lot of new people coming out to the game. And they don't really know where to start. They don't know where to begin. And I always say, begin at the beginning. And I look at it this way. Mm-hmm. Even though we're allowed to have 14 clubs in the bag, if you're a beginning golfer, you don't necessarily have to have 14 clubs. You can start with maybe seven or eight clubs, but they're the right yep. clubs for you based on your ability. And Because I think it's a lot easier, and that this is really kind of what you were alluding to uh, a bit, Brandon, and that is it's easier to add if needed. If your yep. game supports to have a hybrid or uh, a longer iron in your bag, then you can add, then to subtract, to go out and buy a set of clubs and find out two or three of them don't fit your particular game. So I, I agree with you. I think let's get out. Let's start with sort of a basic set. Let's look at make sure the numbers are, are, are matching up quite right and then add if you need it as you go along and as you improve and become a better player. But, uh, you know, this is an area, I, I think, guys, that so many of our amateur golfers fall short on. And they could probably save a ton of strokes if they would just go out and get fitted properly. Um, because, again, they get out there and they're playing with equipment that's not very well suited for them. They've got clubs in the bag that they can't really hit very well and are not really appropriate for their game, but they've got them there because they know they can have the 14, so they're buying them anyways, and they get out there and it's a mishmash and they're confused. They don't know what to do. So I think getting fitted and working with your pro and help going through that process together, and then obviously you adapt and change as your game changes and develops over time you can add or, or swap out with something different as appropriate. Uh, but I think getting a good start, a good footing, if you will, uh, with a, a good set of clubs that match your game, not somebody else's game, Brian, as you pointed out, uh, I agree with that. I think that's going to get you well on your way to, to lowering your scores. And Lord only knows we've got to start moving these handicaps down because that adds to a lot of frustration. And we want people to get out there and have fun in their game and enjoy it, and they certainly can't do that if they're not getting off to a good start. So um, I want to thank both of you guys. Uh, did a great job tonight, as always, uh, with our discussion tonight on Coach's Corner, and I appreciate it. I'm going to give you each a, a, just a moment if you want to uh, let the fans know the best way that they can reach out to you if they have any questions or they just want to get in touch with you. Maybe you can help them with their game. So um, ladies first, Sue, if you want to go ahead, and then Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Um yeah, you can reach me. I have a website. It's called uh, com, and um, you can order my uh, international best-selling book on the website. It's uh, called Change Your Brain, Change Your Game, and uh, there's an actual performance journal that is a companion journal with that as well. And, um, yeah, or you can reach me at my phone number, 480-392-6563. I'm up in... Um, the director of instruction and head golf professional now at the up in Payson Golf Club up in Payson, Arizona. So come up and visit us. It's uh, beautiful up here. It's about 85 degrees right now. So uh, oh, wow. thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's uh, beautiful up here. So yeah, thanks for having yeah, me and really enjoyed enjoyed the the conversation tonight. Well, thank you, Sue. As always, it's a pleasure. Um, Brandon, go ahead. 
Uh, well, Ted, you know, everything I have out there in the world is under Stooksbury Golf. Every single time we do this, I make the joke that having Stooksbury as a last name is the, the single worst and best thing that you could ever ask for. Um, it's really hard to say and make dinner reservations, but there's not another one out there. And so everything I have is under Stooksbury Golf. Um, and, and so whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, uh, the website's even StooksburyGolf.com. Um, I sell all my books on Amazon unless you want a signed copy. Um, and in that case, I'm happy to do it direct. You can just reach out to me via my website. I'm happy to send anybody a, a signed copy in the mail. Otherwise, you can check them both out on Amazon, uh, the putter book or the wedge book. Um, you know, that's about it, Sue. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, I don't know you personally, but, but uh, it certainly sounds like you've got a great program and definitely know your stuff. So I enjoyed the time. Ted, thanks as always. Thanks, All right. Brandon. I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate both of you. Uh, much continued success, and I look forward to the next time uh, you join me here on uh, Golf Talk Live's Coach's Corner. Have a great weekend, guys, and I'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Ted. See you, Ted. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that was Sue Weger and Brandon Stukesbury uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, I'm going to have my very special guest, uh, Dr. Bern- Bernacki, join me here in just a moment. But first... Here's a couple of quick messages from some of our sponsors. This edition of Golf Talk Live is brought to you by Golf Pal. The best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories. Get in on some great deals on leading products such as Down Under Board, Rub Soto, Golf Slingshot and more. Visit GolfPal.Golf today. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Golf Pal. We're serious about your game. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, Equipment, training aids, accessory, and apparel reviews. Golf destinations and travel tips for every budget. And so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back, everybody. And I'm excited once again to have uh, my very special guest, Dr. Bern Bernacki. Uh, He is the president of the Golf Heritage Society. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then I'm going to bring him on. We've got a few things to talk and share with you tonight this evening on the show. Uh, Dr. Bernacki is a community-based self-employed family physician uh, for more than 35 years who, of course, loves this great game of golf. Uh, He plays in a variety of different ways, including with hickory, uh, steel, and some of the modern era shafts, and uh, always uh, with, as he puts, a period-appropriate golf ball. Uh, Dr. Bernacki also is active in youth development and drug prevention activities, uh, having recently uh, competed, uh, completed excuse me, a leadership role uh, with the first tee in Pittsburgh. Uh, he also, as mentioned, serves uh, the membership of the Golf Heritage Society uh, currently as their president of the organization. So please welcome back to the show, Dr. Bern Bernacki. Good evening, Dr. Bernacki. How are you? I'm doing great, Ted. I'd uh, love it if you call me either Bern or Dr. Bern. We'll get along just fine. All right. All right. <laughs> I will call you Dr. Bern. How's that? Uh, I appreciate hey, you coming great. back and, and <laughs> well, listen, you know, I, I always, I always look at it this way. I always love 
you know, having this time with my guests. And I had you uh, on earlier this year, and we talked about, uh, you know, the Gulf Heritage Society. And uh, I thought what we would do just for some of the new listeners that may be tuning in tonight, maybe we could just do a, a, just a brief little recap. And I know there's some specific things that you want to uh, talk about tonight on the show. So just tell everybody just a little bit uh, about uh, the Gulf Heritage Society, uh, what it is, how it got started, and when it got started. Great. Thanks, Ted. Well, we're an um, organization that loves golf. Um, we started out 50 years ago as the Golf Collector Society, and um, many of our people have uh, amazing collections uh, of high-end things and low-end things. And for those 50 years, uh, well, that's who we were. And about three years ago, we, we understood that within our ranks, we also had writers, historians, players, coaches, um, architects, you name it. So we decided to expand uh, the recognition of all of those folks and call ourselves the Golf Heritage Society. So any one of your listeners who wants to uh, learn more about who we are and what we do, well, go to golfheritage, G-O-L-F-H-E-R-I-T-A-G-E dot O-R-G, and you'll see all the many categories of interest around the game of golf. So we endeavor to enjoy the game of golf uh, in, in a thousand different ways and invite people to uh, enjoy the history of the game and the events of the game and the people and places. And guess what? We still have all those artifacts, and we know the stories behind uh, the collections we have to be able to really bring to life the history of the game of golf. Let me ask you, Dr. Byrne, just a little bit about that. For Again, for those that maybe are not familiar, maybe especially some of our younger audience that may be not familiar with some of the history, maybe you could just share a couple of things about the history of the game that maybe the average folk um, that may not know about golf, um, maybe you could share a couple of stories with us uh, just a little bit well, about sure, the, the actual heritage uh, of it. So may, go ahead and, and uh, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you go. Sure. Well, we we, uh, we have a lot of um, enjoyment uh, looking at these collectibles. We also love to get together and exchange stories. And, you know, a lot of us will have a book collection and use them as reference. There's reference books mm-hmm. on collecting. There's, uh, uh, you know, books, you, know, you name it. What's coming up next? Well, the Curtis Cup's coming up very shortly. The Ryder Cup's coming up this year. And, of course, all the majors. And a lot of our folks have become authorities on different aspects of the game. You know, the Ryder Cup, and boy, know a whole lot about it, have certain uh, collectibles around that, uh, like the members' badges. I have a golf bag for one of the uh, players, and I took it to my club, Edgewood Country Club. It's a Ross course, and we put that out on the um, uh, the, the sign-up area for our 4th of July, and I had red, white, and blue um, different uh, kind of um, club head covers on it, and it really livened up the event, and everybody was in the spirit just differently because of that. Um, uh, Ted, last week, uh, actually it was uh, three weeks ago, I was in Ohio, and I went to a place called Clearview Golf Course. Clearview Golf Course is uh, in the shadow of um, the golf, uh, the the Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame. Everybody knows about that, and uh, you know it, it's exciting. We went there. That golf course was built by hand by a gentleman named, named Bill Powell, 
and William Powell was a great player, a man of color, and he played mm-hmm. um, golf in high school. And when he went to World War II, uh, they found out that he was a good golfer, so he played a little golf, and, you know, uh, uh, I think he drove the Jeep for the general, and they did pretty good. And then when he got home, um, he had a difficult time getting on a golf course because of his color. So mm-hmm. uh, he was unabashed. He um, borrowed some money, uh, bought some property, and built a golf course. He taught his daughter, Renee, how to play golf. Renee became the second woman of color to play uh, on the LPGA Tour. Renee Powell is in the Hall of Fame, and so is Dad. Mm-hmm. We visited there three weeks ago to do something unique. Uh, we took a, um, a couple of foursomes. One played modern clubs, and right behind them, we had a foursome that played, two of us played hickory, one played pyrotone, and one played um, the uh, classic clubs uh, of Palmer player Nicholas that era. Uh, that guy right. was me. Two players played hickory. <laughs> we had a really cool time doing that, and that's a kind of event. Someone brought a lot of collectibles, and everybody that came learn from each other, and, of course, we all got to meet a Hall of Fame golfer, Renee Powell. Yeah, Renee's actually been a guest on my show uh, over the past years and uh, very, very uh, unique and very interesting story, of course, about her father and, and his journey and his love of the game, and obviously he passed that on to her, and she's enjoyed, even to this day, still enjoys uh, a very uh, uh, successful career and, and giving back to others and helping to bring others into the game. So what a great story, and thank you for, uh, for sharing that uh, with, uh, with my audience. I, I want to ask you before we uh, get on to uh, some of the different events that, that you guys have, um, about just to go back to sort of the collectibles a little bit. So just so, so the audience understands, now are these things, are these collectibles not that people sort of donate to the Golf Heritage Society or is it something that the society buys from them to, to keep in the collection or, or how does that work? That's a great question. And, you know, the Golf Heritage Society does not have a headquarters or a location. Technically, we use my medical office in a storage area for some of our um, mailing uh, in magazines, we, we publish a quarterly magazine. It's called The Golf. It's fabulous. It talks about articles of history, artifacts, collectibles. It's really, really cool. Um, and um, we, we highlight um, different uh, things like coming up when the, when the U.S. Open was coming up. We'll have historical pieces that link current players to uh, the past players, and it's a lot of fun when we do that. We really enjoy it. We have some incredible um, uh, authorities and authors that do that. But anyway, um, when we um, um, have these uh, collectibles, you know, they're in private collections. And, Ted, right. people ask me, well, you know, not everybody can afford to have a, a medal won by the U.S. Open Amateur, um, uh, you know, or, or things like that. But if you think about it, some, everybody has golf collectibles. Uh, the scorecard mm-hmm. that, that you kept from the first U.S. Open venue that you played and the first time you played with mom or dad on a golf course uh, and, and, and the pencils, the, the, those things, we call them um, things that are important to me. They, they have sentimental value, and they're just as important to the collector as the 
uh, economic monetary high-end collectibles that are sold for a lot of money on auctions. So um, it can be the history that's important, the personal significance that's important, or the rareness of it that makes it a very important um, economic uh, collectible. But, Ted, the collectibles among our society are in the Mm -hmm. private collection of folks. Now, we would love it to have a regional, establish a regional museum uh, where uh, the the golf uh, interested uh, can donate to us. Uh, We were talking about that. Uh, We're working with at least one university that has some space for us, um, and uh, that may become a, a reality so that people can um, house, show, and uh, exhibit something that was in their family for a, for a long time or that has a specific significance to the game of golf that they were able to donate uh, for the world to see. So, so that's what we do. That's how we do it. Um, when we get together, of course, when we have our annual uh, meeting, now called the National Convention, um, we, we bring a lot of things. And we have a trade show, and uh, there people can uh, view, learn, and even purchase items uh, that um, are uh, affordable to them, not always the high-end things, but unique and interesting mm-hmm. collectibles, and get started if they wanted to be uh, uh, see things that, that would be interesting to them. Now you have uh, you mentioned the GHS, we'll call that for short, uh, National Convention. That's coming up. Uh, September 29th to, through to October 3rd of this year. Um, now, obviously, last year, if I recall from our conversation, obviously because of the pandemic, I believe you didn't have that last year. Is that correct? We got canceled. We were going to be in Pittsburgh, right. and we canceled. Right. Uh, we, we deferred because we're going to be in Pittsburgh this year. Right, right. So you're having it this year, and this gives an, an opportunity for – uh, a lot of the, the collectors, obviously, to come together, and, and uh, it's essentially a, a trade show. Give us an idea of some of, uh, some of the items, particularly, um, that one might find. You mentioned, I know, a couple of, of collectibles now, but some particularly that uh, are, are maybe of interest to you or, or interest to, to some of the other members of, of the uh, Golf sure. Heritage Society that, that are going to be there, just to give you an idea, uh, the folks an idea of, of some things that they can expect to see there if they want to come and, and uh, experience that. I'm going to answer that question first, and I'm going to talk about all the variety of different things that we're going to do in this four-day weekend. Um, so, Ted, imagine yourself um, walking into a, a grand ballroom of a hotel and seeing 100 tables with every kind of uh, golf item uh, collectible and, and, and ranging from, you know, the very first uh, uh, things of the game of golf to the modern. Um, that's what you'll see there. We have people who collect balls and are authorities on it, uh, clubs, putters, um, ceramics, um, medals, trophies, silver, paper products such as um, uh, magazines. Uh, they're golf-centered. Uh, from way, way back. They're so cool to look at. Um, And different things like programs for all of the Masters programs or the U.S. Open programs. Mm -hmm. And the person who wanders through there has an endless opportunity to to pick the brains of the collectors who have these items to show, trade, and sell. 
So that's what you would see when you walk in that room. You know, it's very, very interesting because, yeah, because there's, there's so many different, as you said, there's such a variety of things there to see. What for you personally is some of the most interesting things that you've seen over the years uh, through uh, the society? What, what are some of the items particularly that really caught your attention? You know, um, the, the artwork around the game of golf is just fabulous. You see portraits, you see uh, photography, you see landscapes. So this year at our convention, appreciating the number of members that we have that are uh, golf artists, um, so many uh, folks gravitate to the golf art. We decided that as part of our um, uh, convention, we're going to show and illustrate uh, golf art. We're going to have a seminar with uh, five in-person artists and two world-known uh, artists who uh, will probably call in, zoom in. We're not sure how that's going to work yet because they want to be there, but with COVID, they're, they're a little older and, and really cannot travel. Sure. Uh, but we're going to represent their art, and uh, it's going to be really something. So people would recognize the name Linda Harto, H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H, and Linda's mm-hmm. uh, uh, artwork is notable. It's, it's highly sought after. Uh, originals are incredibly valuable, uh, and they're all wonderful. They just captivate you. You could stare at it for a long time. So we all enjoy that. Personally, um, I've had a journey uh, where my collectibles um, uh, started out, uh, just, you know, uh, picking up a ball here or a club there. And then I found out that some people play with these uh, implements, and it was fun. I went out and banged a, uh, a ball around. Uh, really, you know, we buy these period balls. They're replicas because if you hit a gutty ball, it would fall apart because it's 120 years old. So you can't play with right. that. Some of the clubs we play with are that old, but they're, the irons are really uh, solidly made. They're heavy, so they're not going to be injured. But in, at, at certain times, we'll break a shaft on a um, a 90-year-old club, and we'll just have to replace it. That's all. So we do that, and we have folks that have the uh, skills and ability to uh, remake a club and get it out there and ready to play uh, uh, for uh, many more holes. So uh, we do we do a lot of these things when we gather. So uh, it's a lot of fun. So I personally uh, have enjoyed putting together sets of clubs from different eras, Ted, so I have a pre-1900 smooth face set. They're kind of heavy. I'll play them next week at Foxburg, F-O-X-B-U-R-G, in Pennsylvania, off of Route 80, uh, below Erie. And it is um, the, the 13th time that we've gathered there. Foxburg is the oldest continuous, continuous club in America. It is a nine-hole course. And we go around four times uh, over two days, and we play uh, different divisions. Um, the uh, open division will play a replica gutty ball, solid ball, with those smooth-faced clubs. We have another division will play post-1900 with a period replica wound ball, a Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L ball. And that's a lot of fun. The ball is a little livelier. It goes a little further. The little older players kind of gravitate to that game. Um, so that's pretty much a, um, a hickory 
uh, tournament and gathering. We will have folks who will bring collectibles and clubs for show and sale. So everything that we do uh, is is always uh, fellowship and learning opportunity interaction. And you know, usually you can pick up a club or or uh, an item that makes your collection or your playset that much more um, uh, valuable to you. So we have a blast. So, Dr. Byrne, let me go back to the clubs for just a second. You know, you've in your collection, and, and I'm sure, obviously, you've seen many other collections out there. Um, when you're talking about clubs, you know, that are 100 years old or 90 years old, obviously, uh, there's a big technology gap, for lack of better words, between what we play today and what we, you know, would would have played back then. What are some of the things, I mean, you know, you've got a smooth-faced uh, club face that you talk about in that what kind of an experience, kind of maybe you can explain a little bit about what it feels like playing some of these older clubs compared to what you would play today? Because I don't think a lot of people that, you know, obviously that weren't born back then and never had that experience wouldn't understand. But obviously there is a difference. Maybe just talk a little sure. bit about that for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. That's a really good, yeah, that's a really good uh, question for me to expound on, Ted. Um, you know, these these um, club heads, the irons, uh, they're a little heavier, so you got to slow down and, and just swing through the ball. But if you're when you're a kid, the club feels awkward. I'm 68. I've been playing since I was 10. That's a lot of years of golf, and I can remember the first time I hit a seven iron and hit it solid, and the ball went up into the air against the sky. I was absolutely hooked. And when <laughs> I hit any kind of a ball with any kind of a club, and I hit it square, I get that same kind of feeling. Now, the modern mm-hmm. technology, to your point, is really in that uh, 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 making it a little easier to hit it square and, and, and get your distance out of it. The um, difference is in the technology of those modern irons and in the design and uh, uh, com- composition of those um those shafts, they really help out. And it gives an average golfer who doesn't hit it square a reasonable experience. Well, let's wind back the clock uh, 100 years to 1921, and those clubs were manufactured. A lot of companies uh, uh, were over here now, um, and a lot of the clubs earlier to that came over, and the American companies, your Spaldings, um, and your McGregor's, uh, spun off from companies and owners uh, that came over from Scotland and England. And uh, when the players here were hitting those clubs, um, you know, those were not as forgiving. But I have to tell you, a skilled player, a professional or a good amateur, or, you know, you and me on a good day, Ted, you're an instructor, so you would hit every shot right. solid. That ball would mm-hmm. go. For me... You know, most of my shots, I hit them pretty square. But when you don't hit them, you don't get the forgiveness that you get in the modern club. I really think that's right. where the technology is the most different. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Obviously, there's a l- much more forgiveness in the clubs that we're playing with today than, than what they would back then. And I think it's very interesting. You know, there's a lot of uh, you know tournaments now that you see through a lot of different organizations, including yourselves, obviously, that uh, play that a very traditional, what would be considered a traditional uh, hickory or, or other 
uh, you know, older uh, clubs out there. And it's very, very interesting. It's more of a, what I would, again, call a more of a traditional game uh, going back to some of its original roots. And I think it'd be very, very interesting for a lot of people that have never seen that or experienced that before uh, to, to have a better understanding. Because, it, again, so much has changed. We see what's out there right now, and it's very hard to imagine uh, a player back in 1921 or a golfer back in 1921. Uh, it, it's going to be a much different experience for them than obviously what they're going to see uh, in today's uh, you know modern game. And I think it's very, very interesting um, sure. some of the, the changes that have point. gone on. Sure. You're right. There's, there's, there's one more point on this. I described really the iron play game in those previous comments just now. But, you know, mm-hmm. when you see pictures of the old uh, golf clubs um, in artwork and in photographs, you notice the, the wooden heads of those golf clubs. You know, they're kind of like the size of your, um, your trouble wood, maybe a little bit uh, shorter, uh, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Jones was hitting that ball 250, 280. He was massive in his drives. And these Mm -hmm. players could play. They could get every ounce of energy out of their ball and their swing uh, with those hickory sticks and and solid um, uh, fruit wood heads. They were small, but it didn't matter because they hit them square and they hit them far. Amazing. That's the hard part. Yeah, gearing yourself down. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this, Ted. Um, playing mm-hmm. the hickory game, especially off the tee, uh, makes you focus on your drive and swing through the ball better, such that when you're playing your modern equipment with more forgiveness um, with your modern swing, um, you're, you're probably a better player for the experience. So we have fun with the hickories. Um, we don't do it to torture ourselves. My goodness, we're doing it for fun <laughs> and uh, right. a unique experience. And we do that with kids, and then we uh, get to talk about who made this club and where and what kind of clothes were they wearing then. And they go online and they start looking up things. It's great fun for them. Yeah, this is all about fun. Yeah, and and you know it, it is interesting to to learn about the history of really of anything, but you know in this particular case we're talking about golf. But you know a lot of people don't see that that you know the generations coming up now that are introduced to the game don't really fully even the, at the tour level don't really fully appreciate uh, the, the differences and the changes in the game from you know even 50 years ago, um, let alone 100. And it's very very interesting to you know get a handle on where the game has and how it has developed over the last, you know, 100 or so years. And as you said, you do, uh, you know, you're teaching those younger generations. I know you shared a, a story uh, the last time you were here about a young girl, um, if uh, you recall, and you, you said that the sort of the experience um, of, of her reaction and, and how she felt about that. And um, if you recall, if you wanted to share that again with uh, tonight's audience, oh, I'd be do, more than happy to. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was please. great. Um, yeah, she was a first tee player and on the younger side, uh, and she came out, and it was a warm day, and, you know, I have the youngsters register. I want them to be serious about it and to know it's a unique and different experience, and they sign in kind of like they'd register for a little tournament, and, um, you know, they name, address, the whole whole thing, and I asked them some questions, you know, 
well, why are you doing this and uh, what what is your intention and, and you know they they're looking for a unique experience and they want to learn and they want to hold those old clubs in their hand so off they go in in threesomes and um this one particular gal came back um and she had um uh, uh, pigtails um and you know she <laughs> she was kind of kind of worn out and and a little bit sweaty and her glasses were off kilter so we gave her a cool drink and a a, a cool washcloth and sat her down again <laughs> and then we talked to her a little bit and on the flip side of her application were those questions why did i do this what was i hoping to gain what did i learn and you know what what would make it uh, a better experience and this is pretty much what she said she said i i wanted to learn and i and i wanted to uh, put those old clubs in my hand and see if i could hit them and then she said it was really hard at first but then i got the hang of it and then i had a mm-hmm. lot of fun and then i started to think about who made this club and where it came from. And I had a million questions with my friends while we did this experience. And, you mm-hmm. know, I read that and uh, it made it worthwhile for me to take the time and bring the clubs together and, and make the event happen. So these young people really appreciate what we do for them when we share history uh, through, through play. It's really, it's really a lot of fun. Well, and I think it's important. I think, you know, as the, again, as a younger person, you know, she has an opportunity to share and experience something that, you know, is is not normally available or present in today's uh, modern age. And sometimes, you know, when you go back and you see where sort of things began in, in a certain area, and again, in this case, golf, I think it really truly helps you to appreciate the overall game. Um, you know, it's not just about um, you know getting up there and hitting golf balls and sinking putts and that. It's really about how the equipment's made, how it's developed, who puts the time and the research and development that's gone into it. And you know, there was a lot that went into it, a lot of trial and error. I'm sure. Uh, obviously, now with technology, they can do it at much more advanced. But you know, even back 100 years ago, I mean, they had to research and develop. They had to test equipment, and and it was obviously a much different beast back then. Um, but it would be very interesting, I could see, to a youngster particularly, um, you know, that has those types of questions, uh, to be able to learn from that and to get out there and actually try the equipment and you know play with the equipment and 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 have an experience like that. I think is is something that's really to be in, in, invaluable. Um, you are, now you have the event, absolutely. right? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, so I was just going to say I'm going to tell one more quick story, if I may, Ted. Uh, we sure. had a first yes, youngster um, who who went out. He's very enthusiastic, but this was a youngster who has a physical. Um, not, I wouldn't call it a handicap, but 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 he he has um, he has difficulty physically, and um, he played the first hole. And it was sort of a slight downhill, about uh, 270 yards. And he turned around, and the second hole came back, sort of around the corner. And he came up that hill, and he played, and he quietly uh, retreated to the clubhouse. And he watched everybody play. And he enjoyed it. He took notes. And he had a great time doing it. Well, here's what happened next. He got so interested. He had a project at school in, like, eighth grade, I believe. And he was asked to write a paper. His topic became golf and old golf and the history of golf. 
what did he do? This youngster uh, went online and he contacted old clubs in England and Scotland and started to interact with them. And he became friends with uh, people that were over there, um, you know, running the, running the show, and they got to know him. So, of course, he wrote a terrific paper. They sent him um, artifacts from their golf clubs. Um, and, of course, he wrote a wonderful paper from his experience in playing uh, and then being stimulated to go and research history and make friends uh, across the pond over in Scotland and England. Yep. How about that for a story? That was yeah, that's fantastic. Class. Yeah, and, and see, and that's what I mean is sometimes it just, you know, just sort of planting that little seed, if you will, can can open up, um, you know, the mind of a youngster like that to do that. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And and obviously, again, with, with the advances of technology to be able to interact with somebody, you know, 100 years ago, you couldn't do that. You couldn't contact somebody over there. It would take you months you know, to, to write them and, and get a response and that now with a click of a button or, you know, or a mouse, what have you, you can get on there and you can interact with people. And the fact that this young man, uh, you know, took the initiative based on his experience, you know, with, with you and, and your group uh, was able to, um, you know, even have a greater experience by reaching out to somebody else, uh, you know, that had, um, you know, some information that, that helped him in his paper. And I think that's a fantastic story. And, and it, see, this is where I would love to see more and more of today's players. And I don't mean just re- recreational golfers, but even today's players, um, you know, dig a little deeper into the history of the game. I mean, it, it's tragic, really, because, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of, of uh, you know, LPGA and, and even PJ players and you know certainly they know who nicholas was they know tiger they've heard of arnold palmer and some of the other nancy lopez uh but beyond that they don't really know a lot about the history of the game and i think a lot of them would have a uh, even a greater appreciation um so i'd like to you know I'd, I'd like to see more of them um you know take that plunge if you will like some of the youngsters you just referred to yeah. i think they would have even so would we, a, a greater yeah, appreciation we, yeah <laughs> yeah go ahead we we have a relationship with the USGA. They know us. They love us. Our members uh, uh, do research and, and use the libraries and such of the USGA. And they're regular people. Um, you know, they're not academics. They're just interested. And that's a great resource, the USGA. Um, the, we're developing mm-hmm. a relationship with the PGA and the PGA players uh, because we have so many uh, resources uh, of history, uh, of people, places, and things, I like to say, uh, that we can and should be um, a valuable partner with them. And, and many of the uh, young professionals that I interact with at different clubs, they gravitate uh, when I show up in Hickory outfit with Hickory clubs, uh, period dress. Um, and I, I always stop and talk. I was in New Hampshire, um, you know, for a Hickory golf event, and it rained cats and dogs uh, right at the end yeah. in the, the junior golf league got interrupted. So um, the youngsters were huddled in the lobby and we all came in soaking wet. Um, but but I, I just pulled out uh, two two clubs. I pulled out a sand wedge that is the heaviest club that, that I've ever held. And I put it in the hands of the kids and had them pass it around. Um, and they all uh, were fascinated with, with the design and the heaviness of it. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple of grandfathers were in the crowd and 
we were talking about how old that club was, and it was older than that person's dad. And it, it became quite a, an interesting experience for those 20 minutes, half hour that we were all um, waiting for the rain to stop. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So, you know, that's what we do when we have an opportunity. We share. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And just to let the, the folks know they're tuning into the show tonight, I'm going to just give them some information about your upcoming uh, the National Convention is going to be held September 29th to October 3rd at the Doubletree Inn in uh, Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And uh, there's a, uh, a public is invited to attend uh, the Golf Heritage Society trade show, which is taking place on Saturday, October 2nd at the hotel from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, entry for the public is free and there is no registration uh, required. And uh, if you want to get more information uh, to uh, to attend, you can reach out through their website at the uh, golfheritage.org. Um, Dr. Byrne, as we get ready to uh, to wrap up here, is there any uh, other thoughts or maybe another story that you'd like to share with us before we uh, we close out? I, I have one for you, Ted. Uh, the people that uh, come to our convention, we're going to play golf as our um, championship. Uh, we're going to play the Hickory Championship that we're famous for, and also we're going to play a uh, classic clubs, uh, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Gary Player era, and we're going to uh, have uh, folks that are playing moderns as well. So we call that heritage golf when you play whatever and you can uh, enjoy it. Well, we decided that since we're going to be on Latrobe Country Club, home of Arnold Palmer, I know I'm going to Mm -hmm. play clubs that Arnold played, and, and play classic clubs. That's going to be a no-brainer for me. Uh, other people are going to play in the Hickory uh, event. Well, we also decided that there's a gazillion Arnold Palmer collectibles, high-end and low-end, unique uh, and, and common, and we're going to have a display. So the public in western Pennsylvania and the tri-state area will have the opportunity uh, for several days to come and see different of our folks together their Arnold Palmer collectibles. It'll be really cool. We even had a guy who has a major collection. I called his house, and I set up a Zoom call. And for those of you who are um, uh, tired of Zoom meetings, you would love this one because he walked around his house talking about his, mm. uh, his personal Arnold Palmer collections, many of which were given and signed wow. uh, to him by Arnold Palmer personally. That Zoom was recorded and saved and is part of our uh, now collection and archive that we're building for all the great stuff we're doing using modern technology. Isn't that cool? That's fantastic. That What a great opportunity to see. I mean, you know, so many golfers, even young and old, all knew who, uh, of course, uh, the late Mr. Palmer was and uh, his story. And uh, you're right, he had quite, he had quite the collection. Uh, of of different uh, you know memorabilia from golf from equipment to uh, other things as well. So uh, for this gentleman to have acquired uh, you know a, a good uh, a good many things in his collection to be able to share that what a great opportunity and and uh, the fact that you're playing on uh, essentially his home course uh, in the upcoming event um, that's a, a great opportunity as well. Um, I think uh, a lot of people. Uh, you know, love Arnold uh, so much, and he was really um, a consummate gentleman. Uh, I didn't have, obviously, the 
pleasure of, of interviewing him, unfortunately, but uh, I did uh, meet him once years ago at an event, and uh, he certainly was everything wonderful that everybody has said to him. So what a great thing, and I, I look forward to actually uh, seeing that, that uh, clip once it's available. I would love to, uh, uh, to know when that becomes available. Uh, through your archives and, and be able to see that. I think it would be very interesting. But, um, well, Dr. Byrne, I want to thank you very, very much. And also one other quick note, I want to mention that the uh, presenting sponsor of your national convention is the Golf Auction. You can see more about them at golf auction, uh, thegolfauction.com. And again, if you want more information about the upcoming convention, uh, that can be found on golfheritage.org's website. Dr. Byrne, I want to thank you very, very much for, for coming on, and um, I'm glad that uh, Linda is going to be a part of uh, this event as well. Linda Harto, of course, is going to be a guest in a couple of weeks here again on Golf Talk Live, so I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with her. So she'll be on actually before uh, she takes part uh, in, in that event. But uh, what a great uh, great lady to honor uh, and have uh, some of her uh, uh, great artwork uh, displayed. And um, it, it definitely, it, it's amazing. Her story was very, very uh, interesting that she shared with us on the show, and I'm looking forward to speaking with her again in a couple of weeks. But Dr. Byrne, I want to thank you again for coming on the show this evening and sharing uh, a little bit more about the history. And uh, you're always welcome, my friend, to come back on and share some more interesting things. And let me know when your archive uh, collection is, is up and and running, and I'll be more than happy to, to spread the word and, and let the folks know that they can go and, and check it out. Great, Ted. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. The time really flew. Uh, so, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, anytime, that, uh, anytime that you want me to come on and tell some stories, I'll be happy to do it. But, yeah, uh, the folks that want to learn more and enjoy the game of golf in a thousand different ways, golfheritage.org. And I promise you, Ted, that I'll get back to you, and uh, you have to see that Zoom. You'll just love it. Yeah, I would love it. So, again, the uh, Golf Heritage Society trade show is open to the public in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The, uh, we'll hold your uh, national convention from September 29th to October 3rd at the Doubletree Inn in uh, Marone, uh, Monroeville, excuse me, Pennsylvania. And uh, the, it's open, the trade show is open to the public on Saturday, October 2nd at the hotel from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Entry is free to the public, and there's no registration uh, required. And again, you can go to their website, golfheritage.org, for more information. Dr. Byrne, again, thank you very much for coming on this evening on Golf Talk Live. Always a pleasure, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, Ted. My pleasure. Take care, all. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was Dr. Byrne Bernacki, uh, president of the Golf Heritage Society. Uh, always uh, enjoy having him on, and, and again, a true historian of, of the game and, and a lot of very interesting things. And if you just want to see some of the different things and, and learn a little bit about them, uh, you can go to their website, golfheritage.org. That's golfheritage.org. And if you're planning on uh, or, or in the Pennsylvania area and you're going to be in the neighborhood, then I would strongly recommend that you attend the uh, trade show. There's going to be, as he said, about 100 exhibitors That'll be there with all kinds of memorabilia. So if you really enjoy uh, this game and you want to just uh, see a little bit more about the history, uh, then you might want to check out that out. And again, you can get more information by going to golfheritage.org. All right. Uh, again, I want to thank uh, Sue Weger and Brandon Stukesbury for joining me tonight on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, guys, for doing a great job. And again, thanks to my special guest this evening, Dr. Byrne Bernacki. I will see you guys next week 
with another fresh panel on Coach's Corner and another insightful guest here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.